0: Luke chapter 4, our focus is going to be verses 1 to 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and jesus answered him it is said you shall not put the lord your god to the test and when the devil had ended every temptation he departed from him until an opportune time father we turn our hearts to you we lift our voices in prayer we look to Jesus. We see him there in the wilderness in that toe-to-toe combat with the devil. And Father, first and foremost, I want to praise you. We praise you together, Father, that where everyone else has failed, Miserably fallen, Jesus prevailed. He triumphed. He stood fast. He would not be moved. And because of this triumph and the triumph of the cross and his emergence, resurrection from the grave, we have a Savior. And Father, not only has the guilt of our sin been canceled, but the power of sin has been broken. And now we may enter the fight ourselves, and we do every day, as you know, Father. And and the the combat is heavier, the the fight uh, more pitched than even we understand. I pray that you would help us to understand it, And I pray, Father, through the Holy Spirit who led Christ into the wilderness and filled him there in the wilderness, I pray that we ourselves would be led and filled and would win. Help us to continue on faithful. May we see new successes and victories every single day for your honor and your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Every passage of the Bible that we come to, no matter where that passage is found, Old Testament or New, uh, Law, History, the Writings, Prophets, Psalms, whatever, no matter what passage we come to, we come with our eyes peeled for Jesus. We come looking for Christ. We open up the Word to come to Christ, to draw near to Him, to worship Him. And not only to draw near to him, but to draw from him. We've been going through this, this narrative in Luke, and we've been seeing these stunning, beautiful things about Jesus. And thus far, it, it's all been glorious for us, and it's been glorious for him, really. And if we had not read this before, if we didn't have the, the hindsight, that a 2020 vision of Hindsight, knowing the rest of the story, be like, okay, so what can we expect for this Jesus who is the son of Adam, the son of God? But what we immediately find in Romans, or Romans, Luke 4 is that it's not going to be easy. He is not simply going to waltz into Israel, turn a few tricks, and turn the poles in his favor, and then just chill. That's not going to be his life. An enemy stalks his earth, seducing souls. And this enemy is by no means alone. There is an invisible power that patrols the earth at his whim. Many powers. Principalities, the Bible calls them. Rulers and authorities. In the unseen realm, patrolling the earth at his whim. And he's got kings and he's got kingdoms in his back pocket. And so now the rightful king, the anointed one, has come to earth to save mankind and to reclaim this planet for the kingdom of God. Do you think this enemy is going to go quietly? It's time for war. We see that right away in Luke 4. Now, we have seen this kind of thing before. This passage, Luke 4, 1-13, echoes and, and fulfills different encounters with the devil that have been seen prior in the narrative of Scripture. We go right back to the beginning and we find the first man, Adam, there in the garden in an encounter with this being that we know as Satan, the adversary, the accuser, the devil who takes on the disguise of the serpent. Where that first man, Adam, failed, Jesus prevails. He triumphs. He stands. He does not budge. He will not be moved. Think about Adam's failure. And, and think about the condition in which that the setting in which Adam found himself. Adam was God's man in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. He lives with his wife. In paradise, He has dominion over the entire planet. And the only thing that has forbidden Him is the fruit of a single solitary tree. The man has it good. Or to put it in the Lord's words, He has it very good. Adam's setting is the garden. Jesus' setting is the wilderness. There in the garden... Adam's appetites, all the different kinds of human appetites, bodily appetites there are, they're satisfied. Jesus' appetites are screaming. Adam is full. Jesus is famished. Both times, the devil takes the same approach. He basically says, is this... Is what you have enough for you? Because I think that you deserve more. I think that God is withholding from you. And what he withholds, I am offering. Is this enough for you? Is what you have enough? It's the same thing in both encounters. And Adam, full in the garden Living full, he grasps for more as though he did not have enough, as though he had got a raw deal. And Jesus, famished, drawing near even to death, refuses to grasp after a single thing. Adam is the first unfaithful son, but he's not the only unfaithful son. God raised up a nation of the descendants of Abraham. That nation was enslaved in Egypt and God spoke to the man who held them captive. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go. Eventually, he broke the hardness and the resistance of Pharaoh's heart and Israel was redeemed. Israel was the redeemed son emerging out of Egypt Comes into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And over forty years God's son is tempted, and to every single test and temptation, Israel succumbs, failing. And you can see the the comparisons and the contrast in this. Narrative in front of us in this event in Jesus life in his own encounter with the devil even in the words with which Jesus responds to the devil's temptations because every time Jesus speaks he says it is written it is written and it is said last of all and he is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, Israel, God's firstborn son, stands on the brink of their inheritance, the promised land, and Moses, their leader, is reminding them about how they have failed over the past 40 years and the only way that they can succeed going forward. So Jesus, knowing how Israel has failed, knowing the truths, claims the truth for himself and in his own temptation over 40 days in the wilderness, he responds back to the devil's temptation with the truth of the word of God. And so he fulfills, Jesus fulfills what Adam was supposed to do. And he fulfills what Israel was supposed to do. And he becomes the fullness of who they were supposed to be. Adam was supposed to image God to the world. Israel was supposed to image God to the world. Jesus is the true image of the invisible God. Where they failed, he prevails for us and our salvation. Now, how does this devil fight that Jesus encounters? Not at first, at least. He doesn't fight with physical force. That threat will come later. But that is not the devil's first approach. Satan's scheme is not to bring Adam or Israel or Jesus or you and me into submission by threats of pain. He doesn't try to bring us into submission by threats of pain, but rather he brings us or tries to bring us into submission with Promises of pleasure. Because the first thing he wants is our hearts. He wants our souls. That's what he wants of you. And if he cannot get your soul, then he will settle with threats of pain against your body. He'll settle for that. But what he really wants is your soul. Because if he can have your soul, then both will be destroyed in hell. The soul and the body. And so that's what the devil is after in this encounter with Jesus Christ. He wants Jesus' heart. So here we find Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit, brought into the wilderness. And I, I want to remind you of something. Do you remember how the previous paragraphs to this ended? The first one I'm referencing is Jesus at his baptism and the heavens being opened and God declaring over Jesus, this is my beloved son. This one is the son of God. And then in the following paragraph that closes out Luke 3, we are reminded that Jesus is the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and eternally the son of of god now jesus led of the holy spirit is being tempted for 40 days it's not just at the end notice that in in the text not just at the end that he's being tempted it's throughout the 40 days that he is tempted by the devil and then at the end the only particular temptations that are recorded for us are the last three when jesus is hungry when jesus is famished, actually, nearing death because he has been without food. doesn't say he's been without water. Without food for 40 days. And Satan knows something. He, he knows that when the body is physically weak, when the body is listless, the soul often follows suit. When the body weakens, very often the soul weakens. That's why a lot of times when you're feeling sick, it is hard. There is an extra measure of difficulty in drawing your heart near to God because we are holistic, we are whole beings. And so Satan finds this, the most opportune time to lure Jesus in when his body is weak. Let's read again verses 3 and 4. The devil said to him, and remember again how the two paragraphs right previous to this ended with the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the devil speaks to him. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. The devil's provocation of Christ centers on two things. Who is Jesus And what is God withholding? Who is Jesus? And another way we could put the second thing is, is God good? Who is Jesus and is God good? Is God withholding? It's not that the devil doesn't know if Jesus is the son of God and he's asking Jesus to prove it. And he's not trying to to egg him on to do some kind of cheap trick, like a magic trick, you know, pull the rabbit out of your hat kind of thing. That's not why he's getting him or trying to urge him to turn the the stone into bread. This is what he is saying to Jesus, I think. Not even a slice of bread? If you are the Son of God, shouldn't you have more? Shouldn't your Father, who is God, be taking better care of you? You've got to be kidding me. Not a single slice of bread. Jesus, if you are the son of God, you better start taking care of yourself. That's the temptation. To stop trusting the care of God. Not even a slice of bread. And so he appeals to who Jesus is and what God he may be withholding. Jesus responds immediately. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Why doesn't the temptation tug on Jesus' heart? Because the answer is, because Jesus has been fasting from food, but He has been feasting on His Father. That's the whole purpose of fasting. It's not just to be physically deprived, It's to be spiritually filled. And that's the condition that Jesus is in. Physically, he's famished. His stomach is empty. But his soul is full. He's been feasting on God. So Jesus quotes here Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is recounting the history of Israel in the wilderness to the people. Um, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 8 verses 2 and 3. This is the larger context of what Jesus response to the devil with. Moses said, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This was the reason, reason that Israel did without in the wilderness. God was testing them. He was gauging where their hearts were at. What did they want? What was most important to them? Bread or God? The creation or their creator? So now Jesus, who is the true and better Adam and the true and better Israel, famished after 40 days in the wilderness, recalls that test and he recalls the truth that Israel failed to believe. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. And the fuller quote of that is in the parallel passage to this in Matthew chapter 4, which closes out, but by every word... That comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words. I will be utterly reliant on my father. Above all things. I need him. His father is going to take care of him. Verse 5. And the devil took him up. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world. In a moment of time. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I'm reading this in a deliberate tone. Even how we read the scriptures. You hear it in your mind, how you read, even as you read silently. The tone is important. Does Satan sound like he has a sneer? A growl to his voice that reveals his true intentions. I don't think so. He is seducing. He is luring. He is speaking softly. Speaking like he cares about Jesus. Let's um, let's talk about something briefly. There's a there's a question about this passage. Many people have wondered if the devil was telling the truth about his authority here or if he's just telling a bald lie. Does he actually have the authority and does he hold the kingdoms of the world in his hand? and Does he have the authority to to give them to whom he will? Let's put a couple of truths of scripture together to see if the devil is just telling a straight up lie or a half truth or whatever you want to call it or even just the plain truth. The Bible says in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, something that's not coming to mind right away, and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and all those who dwell therein. So this planet and all the cosmos belongs to God. He has ownership. And about the kingdoms of the world, it says in Daniel that He gives the kingdoms of the world to whom he wills. But at the same time, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says, the whole world, 1 John 5, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So the planet itself and all of the cosmos belongs to the ownership of God. But there is a part of the world that is under the great power of the devil. I wouldn't say that those two things are the same. Creation does not belong to the devil. It belongs to God. But there is this kingdom of men. There is this worldly system that stands in opposition to God and rebels against him. That belongs to the devil. He has the world. We we speak of people being worldly. He has these people This system in his back pocket. And that is what he is offering to Jesus. If Jesus will only switch sides. If Jesus will only change his allegiance. This is what the devil will give to Jesus. Think about how this temptation actually builds on the last one. Let's just put them together for a minute. You're the son of God, Jesus, right? And yet you have nothing. You don't have so much as a slice of bread. If you were my son, I would give you everything. In allegiance to God, you have nothing. If you give me your allegiance, I will give you everything. The kingdoms of the world. How much appeal does this have to Jesus? None. Less appeal to Jesus than a head of lettuce would appeal to a lion. It means nothing to him. Forsake his father. Are you kidding me? Turn my back on my father. He responds immediately. His response is, is terse, short. It's, he doesn't debate the merits of the devil's arguments. He just responds, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Here Jesus is drawing from Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. The next verse in Deuteronomy 6 warns the people about forgetting God in the middle of prosperity and going after the gods of the nations. And so Jesus, in his Father, finds all that he needs and all that he wants and all that is worthy of worship in heaven or on earth. And he will not leave his Father. He will not switch sides for anything. It does not matter what he can be offered and for how long he could have it. He will not turn his back on God. With God, he may live but on his word and not have a single slice of bread. Apart from him, he could have the kingdoms of the world. But to Jesus, it's no contest. Do you know why? It's because of what he makes of his Father. He is considered eternally his Father. His eyes are on his Father. His heart is always drawn and is side by side in His Father. It's about what He makes of His Father. It's better to be a son of God and not have a single slice of bread than to be a son of that snake and have the world fawning over faithless feet. Better to be a son of God and have nothing in this life than switch sides. Why do we grasp after the world? Why are we faithless and unfaithful? It's because we make much of ourselves. And we make much of this world. And we make very little of God in comparison. And Satan says to us, Is this all you've got? Is this enough for you? If you will switch sides, if you will come over to me, I will give you so much more than what you have. I will give you pleasure. I will give you fame. I'll give you everything you ever wanted. Well, what do we want? Do we want God? Or do we want the world and all of its pleasures which are passing away? Why do we grasp after the world? You know, the world is craving everything, chasing after nothing. The world has turned its back on the fountain of living waters, Jeremiah 17. Turned its back on the fountain of living waters to drink From broken cisterns that are draining dry. There's pleasure in there. There's a reservoir of pleasure in the world. But it's broken. It's cracked. And all of those pleasures are running out. The world's going to run out of pleasure. The beds are going to run out of lovers. The pockets are going to run out of money. The calendar is going to run out of weekends. The body is going to run out of strength. The sinner is going to run out of time. And there's going to be nothing left. And that's what the world is chasing down. That's what the world is after. In Psalm 73, I love this psalm. Asaph. He looks out on the world and he he testifies, I I looked out on the world and I looked upon the wicked and they were succeeding, they were thriving, they had everything. They were living fat and even dying fat, it seemed. And the, the righteous, they're oppressed, they're poor, they have nothing. Is it worth being faithful to God? And at the end, Asaph concludes, and I believe that this is the cry of Jesus in his encounter with the devil, Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Nothing. You are all that I want. You are all that I need. That's the cry of Jesus. And Asaph goes on. And he says, hope these words are familiar to you. If they're not, get familiar with them. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever he goes on for behold those who are far from you shall perish you listen you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you but for me it is good to be near god i have made the lord god my refuge that i may tell of all your works o oh, taste and see that the lord is good psalm 34 Are you tasting? Are you seeing the goodness of God? You must be tasting. You must be seeing. Or when the devil holds out the pleasures of the world to you, you're going to bite. Your heart is going to be seduced. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David said in Psalm 16, you will make me, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The world's pleasures are running dry. The pleasures of God are forevermore. Is there a pleasure that you are abiding on that you must spit out? do you need to reverse your course? Are there steps that you must take to get back to the path of faithfulness? I just want to urge you, sacrifice in this life the pleasures of the world in order to gain the Lord. His pleasures are forevermore. You remember Jim Elliott We haven't talked about Jim Elliot in a while. 1950s missionary to the country of Ecuador. Laid down his life. The Aka tribe, natives in Ecuador, took his life and those of his missionary team. As a young man, about 21 years old, Jim Elliot wrote these words. He is no fool who gives What he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool. Jesus said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's the promise of Christ. The promise is, if you die here, you die now, you die to self, and you die to sin, die to the world, die to the flesh, die to the devil. If you die to the pleasures of this world, or die at the hand of the persecutor, you will live. But if you live it up here, if you live for the world and you live for the flesh and live for all the pleasures that the devil can offer, if you live it up, you will end up dying. Better to die and live with God forever than to live and to be eternally destroyed. And he took him to Jerusalem. Verse 9. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him. So, right now, probably Jesus is on the back corner of the temple, standing there perched on this peak, looking down. And below the temple is a cliff and then the Kidron Valley. He could be looking here at a 450 foot drop. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he comes back to this, if you are the son of God thing. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up. Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Lest you stub your toe, Jesus. They'll bear you up. Satan has not been able to make any headway into Jesus' heart so far. Jesus has not budged. And so Satan switches tactics here. And he uses Jesus' tool. He picks up Jesus' sword. And he takes a swing with the sword of the word of God. He picks up the Bible. Our enemy is very well studied. He can twist the scriptures like you wouldn't believe. So Jesus is not going to turn on his father. And he's not going to stop trusting him, right? That's what really, that's what the first two temptations have been about. Stop trusting God and take care of yourself. Stop trusting God and take control over everything. And now he's saying, okay, I get it. You trust God. You trust him. And your heart cannot be moved. All right? Prove it. The Bible says, your father has promised in his word that his angels will bear you up. You won't even stub your toe. So, jump. Prove that you trust God. Prove that he cares for you. Prove his fatherly love. Prove... His word. Let him prove his promises. And Jesus' response, again, with the word, is immediate to the devil in verse 12. He says to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Earlier, Satan had assumed that being the Son of God means that he should have provision and not lack. Where's the bread? You don't even have bread? So he assumes that being the Son of God, he should have provision. Here he assumes that the Son of God should have protection and no harm. And again, he urges Jesus to prove it. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which says, this is Moses preaching to the people, it says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him, At Massa. Okay, what happened at Massa? If you jump back even further to Exodus 17, you find Israel in the wilderness parched with thirst. They have no water and they're very ticked off about it. So they complain bitterly against God. They say, why did you bring us out into this wilderness to die? They even want to stone the leader, Moses, that God has appointed over them. And this is what it says in Exodus seventeen seven. It says they tested him by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? If you are among us, prove it. Prove yourself. Prove your faithfulness. And so they put God to the test. So what does it mean to test God? It means to doubt Him. It means to forget every way and how that He has preserved you and protected you and provided for you in the past and say, forget all that. Forget those proofs of His faithfulness. Prove yourself again. And it's to command the living God. Basically, it reverses the rules. It says, God, I am not your servant. You are mine. Prove yourself. And it's to command God. In fact, I said Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. The very next verse says that we must diligently keep the commandments of God and his testimonies and his statutes which he commands us. So it says don't test him, obey him. Testing reverses the roles. And it says, God, prove yourself. You say this, prove it. And and so on. It makes a demand on God. So Jesus is saying, Deuteronomy is saying, don't test him. Because he commands you. You don't command him. He commands you. In verse 13, it says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time so jesus is on the verge of his public ministry and he's tempted by the devil he goes toe-to-toe with the devil and it's not the end it's just the beginning the devil leaves he gives up he is soundly defeated but he gives up not permanently only temporarily he's waiting for an opportune moment when does this happen how does he tempt him again No doubt he tempts him again in in the pawing of the people, and the praises of the people. When they want to make him king, he tempts him. He tempts Jesus in the antagonism of the religious leaders. And probably also in the dim-wittedness of the disciples. He tempts him. He tempts him. Goes into combat with him. There, as Jesus is facing off against various demons, as we're going to see very shortly, All this is leading up from the wilderness to a garden. And that crisis of soul. When Jesus considers what he is about to bear in obedience to God on behalf of man. To accomplish our salvation. The wrath of God in his heart that all of mankind has been storing up. And not just up to that moment, but... For all of history. There he will face off again against the devil. This time. That time. The devil will not be trying to. Bring Jesus into submission. With promises of pleasure. But with threats of pain. With more agony than any human being has ever experienced. Even those I believe who are even now in the fires of hell. Because Jesus. In the darkness of the cross is bearing the guilt of not a one sinner, not a group, but he is bearing the guilt of mankind. But Jesus will submit to God. He will not save his life. He will lose it. He will lay it down. And in every moment of temptation... He absolutely wipes the floor with the devil. It is critical. Tempted sinner. It is critical that you know your enemy. There are so many things here to, to draw out about who our enemy is. He waits for an opportune time. He's going to give you rest. There will be seasons where you don't feel so acutely The tempter's wiles, as the old King James says, his whisperings in your ear, his seduction, he'll give you rest. Don't lay down your arms. Stay on the watch. Stay on guard. He will tempt you when you are physically weak, especially, because we are whole beings. And when we are physically weak, often, very often, the soul just follows suit. It's natural for us in our weak state. He is also going to tempt when you are on the verge of service to God. He's going to get you to thinking about how you can make a name for yourself, how you will be received, what people are going to be thinking of you. He is going to want you in the position of, Um, thinking of how you can make much of you and get others to make much of you as well. He wants you to steal the spotlight. And so he did with Jesus as Jesus is on the verge of service. He comes to him in vicious attack. He's going to feed you doubts of God's goodness. Is this enough for you? What is God withholding? He's going to feed you with delusions of your own grandeur. You deserve more. You deserve this. You've been doing well. You deserve this. He's going to twist the scriptures. He's going to have you thinking in your mind. This is how he twists the scriptures. He says, God is good. So go ahead. And before, as your eye is on the temptation, he has you presuming on the goodness of God. And how else does he twist the scriptures? After you reach for the temptation, he has you paralyzed with fear and convinced that God will never love you again because God is just. Right? He twists the scriptures. He also wants you alone. It's not wrong to be alone. Always Sometimes it is. On Sunday morning, the people of God should be with the people of God. But He wants you alone. Even amongst the people of God, He wants you to keep to yourself. He wants you to keep away from the fellowship and the love and the truth-telling and the accountability of believers. He wants you feeling sorry for yourself, keeping to yourself. He wants you Alone, embittered, full of self-pity, thinking that you have every right to be where you are and doing what you're doing. It's critical that you know your enemy and and it is vital that you know your God. How does Jesus know his Father? As a man, how does he know his Father? By the Word. Look at the primacy of the Word in the life of Jesus. If he needed it to know what he must do, How much more do we need the Word of God? And here in this Word, we find some deep and sweet encouragement in the fight. This is what we find. We find that the tempter and temptation and every single sin that you ever fight is defeated. Every enemy is defeated. Because your commander, the Lord Jesus Christ, has gone ahead of you into the battle and fought and defeated every single foe that will arise against us. He has broken the claim of Satan and the power of sin over your life. You are delivered from the guilt and the power of the sin that you fight. That's so backwards to our thinking, but so true and so necessary for us to believe. You're delivered From the sin of which you're guilty. And you are delivered. From its power. We need to go into the fight. Knowing that we have a savior in heaven. Who sympathizes with us. Who is at this very moment. Praying for us. We have to take to heart. That he is giving to us. The Holy Spirit. The spirit who led him. And filled him there in the wilderness. By whom Jesus defeated Every temptation that he ever encountered, he gives the Spirit to us also that we may succeed, that we may prevail in the day of temptation, that our hearts may not budge. So we need to go into this fight with heads high, confident, holding fast to the Word of God, and with our eyes fast on Jesus. Father, help us, Lord. I know, Father, we don't take the fight as something that is serious. Temptation is going to come. In the next moment, the tempter is going to be whispering, feeding us with thoughts and imaginations, luring us away. We are so prone to wander, and so prone not to take any of it seriously at all. Life and death, a matter of life and death, I pray, Father, that we would die, die to self, die to sin, to the world, to the flesh, and the devil, and if needs be, in the day of persecution, lay down our lives and never deny our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would remain faithful to death, that we would hate our lives And be glad to lose them. So that in the end, it's life that we may gain. I pray that you would fill every single one here with your Holy Spirit. I pray tomorrow, Father, for tomorrow, that my church family would be praying for the fullness of your Spirit. And in the fullness of your Spirit, engage the tempter. And go into combat. Help. Please deliver us. And I pray that my church family here, I know many discouraged, Father, in the fight, thinking that these habits of sin will never be broken. They'll never be overcome. The season of sin, they'll never escape it. This darkness, this weakness. I pray, Father, that you would give us new victory. And in that victory, we would not... Take pride, we would not take the credit. All praise and honor will go to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.